I don't mind actually if the conversations lead and, and the kind of ideas, these um, urban myths about what is this doing? That's the kind of thing that, that could be really fascinating. Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. Up close, you'll be able to see these beautiful printed circuit boards and the components like pieces of jewelry, but then they'll, they'll come to life, they'll breathe. I think creating work that can be experienced in many different forms, I think is really useful. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health, the environment, and in this case, the arts, about how they are tackling big challenges in these areas. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, and I am joined today by Jason Bruges, an artist, designer, and head of Jason Bruges Studio. Jason's studio does public art installations that incorporate technology, lighting, robotics, and various media, and that respond to their audience and environment. The Jason Bruges Studio will also have an installation at CSU's Spur Campus. Jason is joining me virtually from London today. Welcome, Jason. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. I hesitated a bit to simply refer to you as an artist in that intro. The work you do really sits at the intersection of a number of different disciplines. How do you describe your work? Well, that's right. I trained um, as an artist, um, but then my primary training um, was as an architect. So um, it crosses over between art, architecture, and technology. So I'm if you draw a kind of, I suppose, a classic Venn diagram, I'm in that little intersection in the middle, which is, doesn't really fit easily into one word. But yes, I'm an artist working with technology at an architectural scale. Interesting that you have this varied background and that your work is really interdisciplinary as a result. Your team does, I believe, primarily public art installations. And I think when many people think of public art, what comes to mind is maybe a mural or a large sculpture in a park. But what you just described of sitting at the center of that Venn diagram of art, technology, and architecture leads to very different types of public art that use different media and use a lot of technology. My understanding is it's also frequently interactive with its audience or responsive to the environment around it. Can you talk a bit more about both that interactivity and the interdisciplinary nature of what you do? So yes, interactivity is a key thing, a key um, thing we're looking at in the work. And quite often we're using um, the movement of people through space and interacting with that and using that as a kind of instruction or a cue for the work to come to, to life, for how it kind of performs. It's almost like a sort of notation. And I've got a piece of work which you'll have to sort of imagine this. It's um, a grid of fiberglass pandas, like the giant pandas, um, and they actually rotate to track you, and they all look like they're kind of staring at you. And it was a commission for the World Wildlife Fund, and it was all about um, obviously bringing people to think about what the World Wildlife Fund stands for. But, but interestingly, the piece is very compelling because you're being stared at by... 100 pandas um so if you can imagine that walking around this grid um this little kind of army of pandas looking at you and they basically track and they won't they won't stop tracking you until you stop moving and we're using in that instance thermal cameras 
to map the movement of people and it plays back into the choreography of the artwork and that happens sort of again and again we're looking at environments or aspects of environments that, that are interesting and feeding that directly into the work. So can you help us understand a little bit more as a public artist, what is that process like for you to be brought into a project? What types of places do you work? Uh, how do you and your team become a part of a project? So um, my, my commissioners um, or clients are very often making new spaces. So whether that is for um, higher education, uh, for universities, colleges, or whether it's for infrastructure. So not too long ago, we finished a piece of work that's at Dallas Lovefield Airport, and we're mapping the movement of people on walkways through there. And that was an open competition, as, as was the commission here. Um, we're currently working in um, the Harvard Medical Campus for the new children's hospital there, and we're creating a piece for lobby. Um, whilst that was an invited competition, they'd seen a piece of work we'd created in the Children's Hospital in London. And the pieces of work there are very much about sort of distracting uh, the children on their way to surgery or for treatment. Um, so um, quite often competitions, but sometimes it's also the designers of the spaces that come to us because they can see how our work will weave into those environments. And, and they might have an idea for a space or a setting where our work might help bring, bring the environment to life and add another layer to it. As we've mentioned, you and your studio have a piece that will be installed at the CSU Spur campus. That piece, like many of yours, includes technology. It's got lighting and integration of data that's being collected uh, in the building. Can you talk a little bit more about how technology is used across your various pieces? So the, the, the sort of mixed media component to the work is quite often using technology in different ways. So we're using light or display technology to sort of animate spaces and bring them to life. Um, but there are other sort of technical components we're working with, currently working with uh, a series of robotic arms, the type of arms you might see in an automotive factory. Um, we're... Um, animating and choreographing a landscape in downtown Tokyo using four of these robot arms. And yeah, so we're using sort of technology. It's apply, applied use of technology to different sorts of environments to create these performances, these artful performances that, that kind of animate and bring spaces to life. And this technology is, is really part of the story. Really, the important bit is telling the story and what the work is about. So it's not technology for technology's sake. It's not a case of, you know, this is the answer, but what was the question? There's a sort of, there's a, there's a, a narrative that's being told. So can you maybe describe a couple of your installations and what it was like to see people experience them for the first time? So, um, I'm going to talk about two here. So um, we've recently created a project that will be that that you'll be able to understand as a kind of forerunner to um, the project um, that will that I'll bring to Denver when it's finished. And it was a commission for a building in central London where the 
client, the commissioner, was looking to change how their um, buildings worked and um, therefore were bringing in a team to look at greening the inside of the building. So they're bringing in planting and bringing in uh, some sort of a, an internal garden, which was actually going to be tended for and looked after by the local community. And we, um, we were fascinated with the sort of process of um, trying to find out about how the plants would respond to the environment around them. So we started doing research into um, the NVDI technology, which a lot of your students will be kind of very familiar with, looking at reflected and absorbed infrared. We were growing these tea plants um, in the studio, and it's the last thing you'd expect to see in a sort of digital artist studio is a sort of a kind of little row of tea plants. But like we're next to, we're in a big um, sort of uh, early 20th century building here in East London, and we've got a railway running on um, kind of big rail, brick railway arches running past, and the trains block the light coming into our studio. And the plants were actually changing their level of photosynthesis and the efficiency thereof in real time. And I just, I didn't know that. And um, that was fascinating. But things like those sorts of experiments and those, that, those real time, time tests that we're doing lead to where the work ends up. So the, the piece that we ended up creating is sort of related to the makeup of plant cells and how it cascades across the surface of this lobby that it's in, in central London relates to the sort of microscopic makeup of plant cells. And we have, we have two, um, we have two sort of, it has a dual aspect. From one, one side, you can see modulated animated light. And from the other way, you actually see data within the artwork itself, which is responding to real-time plant um, feedback. I'll go back to another environment. So in a children's hospital in central London, we'd created this, um, journey from ward to theatre and the audience for this work are between one-year-olds and 16-year-olds so quite a wide range in terms of the sort of paediatric um kind of um visitors to the environment and we'd create this wallpaper that walled the journey from ward to theatre and we had this half-toned by half-tone i mean like dots that create this um, pattern that represent this north european birch forest so these trees um, but bursting out of these trees, these little animals appear as you're being wheeled to the theatre. And the whole point of it is to just kind of completely distract the children on that journey. And it was just magical. A, the first time we managed to make this work, because we were embedding our digital technology inside the wall so that this would kind of come to life. And it's, it's just magical for me just seeing the effect that your work can have on people for the first time seeing it. And understanding it, and that cognition of like, where's that coming from? Is it is it projected over my shoulder? But in that instance, it's coming from within the buildup of the actual wall itself. And there's you know there's a layer of um, I'm trying to think what the right terminology would be, but it's like plasterboard. It's a it's a dry dry, dry lined wall, and the lights coming through it, and people are, it's very very magical. And seeing that sort of effect, and seeing the effect that has on people for the first time when they see the work, that's the thing. It's that sort of magic and, and bringing either if the work can create a catalyst for discussion about something, like it might be the future of um, biotechnology or agri-technology, or 
is it the you know, or is it bringing joy? I mean, there's there's sort of two two um, for me kind of criteria for judging success as um, a kind of catalyst or a sense of joy. I can imagine that there are a couple of different reactions that people have. One might be sort of the how does this work reaction where they're maybe understanding for the first time that in some cases your pieces are responding to what they are doing. So there's there's a moment there that must be really fun to watch when people really understand that they can interact with this piece, which might not be that typical with a piece of public art. Yeah, there's, there's sort of, it works on many, many different layers. So there is that immediate um, kind of feedback, uh, that kind of, it, it's, you know, when people realize that that cognition that you've, you've created, or essentially a mirror or something that's sort of creating something that, that, that they can have an effect over. But obviously, quite often you're working in the context of an environment where someone's going to see something day in, day out, and either they're traveling past a piece of work or they work in a building where you've created a piece of work, or it's in some kind of transport infrastructure. If it's in an airport, you might see it once a month or once a week if you're a familiar, frequent traveler. So then it's about building layers of understanding of things that might happen that are different. So if I walk over there versus walk over here, is there a different story? Or um, quite often we'll use... um, data that's um, changing over the year. So you'll have a texture that, that animates a piece. So we've just finished a piece um, in, in Seoul, in South Korea, which is a metaphor for a tree canopy. And you go up through it on a big escalator through the, uh, it's a what, 45 foot diameter oculus. And this there's a suspended canopy of these digital components, which, which are, creating the effect of being like in a tree. And we're using real-time weather data all the time to change what that feels like. So if there's a gust of wind outside, this artwork will animate and change inside at the real, at the real time. So you're, you've got this link to the outside and there we slowly change the effect of the seasons on the artwork. So it's not any dramatic changes and it may reverse and go back again like the weather does. There's things that will, will always be different. And so therefore, we can quite often say that the, the pieces of work that I'm creating, the studio working with me, that they'll always be different. And no like frame or keyframe or moment in time will be copied. So it's always, always going to be different. I love that there is that sort of dual nature, that there's the first, the first experience and then the repeat experience. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the piece that you all will be installing at the CSU Spur campus, because it also will have that first experience that people have. It is installed on a glass pedestrian bridge that goes between two of our buildings. So they'll be the first experience that people have both from the outside of the building and walking through that bridge. And then a repeat experience for people like me who will be living in that building um, you know, my office will be there. I'll be there every day. So maybe you can describe that piece and, and hit on both of those two experiences. So the piece, which um, without ever visiting the site and having an initial idea, I called rotation index and indexing and, and sort of sorting through data is obviously a lot what the work does. And rotation um, came from a, an idea 
which very simply, and this was a kind of imagine a common theme, was looking at the landscape and the pivot irrigation systems, the historical ones, and looking at the effect that that has on our environment, but actually being fascinated by that movement and that direct impact of a mechanical movement on our, on our environment. But then actually thinking about circles and the circle of life and the and data visualization system using circles, um, systems of measuring, looking at kind of sectors on uh, kind of e even looking right down to the electronics in front of me, there are circles in the hard drive or in solid state parts of equipment where things are being plotted and measured all the time. So it was sort of an element of measuring and representation that, that came from the idea of circles. Um, so when you look at the bridge, you'll see this matrix, this kind of grid of little uh, circles. Um, they are, they, they have, holes in them. So they are kind of, there's various geometric terms for that kind of flat torus or that donut. Um, but the idea being that it's something that doesn't kind of cover or block the architectural elevation. It allows you to look through, look through this bridge. The bridge is habitable. I believe there'll be events with on the bridge itself. It's a circulation space. So interestingly, it's something you can see from afar from the um, junction um, at the end of the street, you, you'll be able to see the artwork, but also from within the bridge, you'll be able to look out through the artwork. So it's something that's actually got to work at different scales. I'm going to get up really close and I can kind of look at the materials and up close, you'll be able to see these beautiful printed circuit boards and the components like pieces of jewelry. And there'll be craft within those and, 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 a, kind of, and a kind of technology, but a beauty up close, but then they'll kind of, they'll, they'll come to life, they'll breathe. Each one of these circles has a series of um, concentric um, circles, which, which will illuminate. And at first glance, this will be this kind of living animated pattern that, that will bring to life that elevation. But what we're hoping that this piece becomes a portal into specific things that are happening. So if there is an experiment happening in one of the growth chambers or the greenhouse, and there are parameters or things changing, we can use those same parameters to drive the artwork. So in the same ways, I might change some of the conditions in the greenhouse to see what happens with uh, um, an experiment um, that might be taking place. That equally will change the output from the artwork. So if you imagine that the the kind of artwork is almost like one of those digital pets you used to have as a kid called those sort of like Tamagotchi. You know, the artwork is like one of those. If we feed it and water it in certain ways, it will grow and transform and it will have different outputs that we won't know until we've given it those parameters. So it will be needed to be fed and looked after or watered by that data. So that data will be its lifeline and will bring it to life. And a lot of that detail, it's, it's not a graph on the wall. I mean, it could be, but it's, it's a sort of, it's a catalyst for conversation. We just want people to talk about it and go, I kind of wonder what, what, what's happening in those buildings. I can't see in their black boxes for lots of good reasons. Um, and apart from where you've got lovely architectural fenestration where I can see in, um, but a lot of the things will be hidden. 
So it's very much about starting a discussion and making people curious. And if, if people become curious and have conversations, and quite often, I don't mind actually if the conversations lead and, and the kind of ideas, these um, urban myths about what is this doing? That's the kind of thing that, that could be really fascinating. Yes, I would love it if this piece of art started urban myths around how the lights move around these rings that you've described and, and why. I, I would call that a success. One of the things that C the CSU Spur campus is focused on is inspiring particularly young people, but everyone really who comes through our doors to think about how they can have an impact on these big global challenges we're talking about, food, water, health, the environment, and to help them understand that there are ways that they can engage in these topics regardless of background, regardless of discipline. And I think you just did a wonderful job of describing how art can connect with these topics and how artists can contribute. So thank you. I I may need to come back and listen to this again before we start giving <laughs> tours of, of the site so that I can describe it as poetically as you just did, what is happening with this wonderful piece of art that we're so excited to see. No, likewise, I, sometimes it's quite good to come back to what you've discussed to, to think about how best to interpret the work as well. Could you, you know, do you create a digital twin for this piece? Can it live, can it also live online as well? And, and by that, I mean, it's a sort of representation of this piece when you're talking about inspiring a wide range of um, different types of people from different backgrounds i think creating work that can be experienced downloaded thought about discussed um, in many different forms i think is really useful and something that that one of the bits of silver lining i think from this year is actually con contemplating that and thinking about how work is disseminated above and beyond the physical environment. But of course, that becomes and still is a massively important part of it. Yep. I think what you're describing with the digital twin idea is something we think about with the Spur Campus as well. How can it not just be a location in Denver, but also serve the entire state of Colorado at the very least, and maybe nationally, internationally offer content in food, water, health, and the arts, and all of the all of those topics we've been touching on. The past year for us has really intensified and accelerated our thinking around that virtual space because there was such need for good educational content for everyone whose kids were at home and and for everyone who might want to experience something from afar that they had planned on visiting in person and, and were looking for ways to, to still have some semblance of normalcy this year. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the past year. Um, what, what has the COVID-19 pandemic meant in terms of your work? How has it changed what you're doing? And, and you know, you mentioned a few silver linings, but are there ways that it has changed your work that you think will continue? So, yeah, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic um, has, um, I mean, interestingly, I've traveled now twice in the, in the year. Um, so that's something incredibly unusual. And, and I think for me, it's ref I've reflected upon the fact that I've been actually able to do a lot of work without leaving actually central London in the UK. And that's, that's quite an interesting thing, really. And it, it makes me think about, well, but working for me is really important to see see sites, see places, meet the people you're going to be collaborating and working with and for. And um, not doing that has been interesting 
Um, and obviously this work is very site specific. Sites and spaces are incredibly subtle and there's very subtle nuances about spaces and places. And there are certain things you just have to see and experience at first hand. So to look at a site only on Google Earth and from architectural visualizations and ask questions through obviously very uh, wonderful meetings um, online uh, via video conference. It, it's, it's, it's interesting to sort of think about, well, how are my responses to places changing based on, in fact, being slightly, I mean, the, the, a kind of digital photograph or video or Google Earth is a sort of slightly blunt instrument in, by which to understand the world in terms of something that's multisensorial. But it has brought uh, an idea that we can work flexibly. I mean, my team is not, I have all the sort of specialists in my team, both in the sort of creative and the technological side. Um, usually there's sort of nearly 30 people in the studio. And today, actually, there's quite a few. There's about five or six people testing things. We're allowed to come into a place of work if you can't do it reasonably from home. So that's pretty much been like that for the last 12 months. So um, I'm coming in because I'm looking at things and looking at what they physically look like rather than via a camera. Um, so this ability to work flexibly has, has been interesting and it means that I think practice and how I work will, will be much more fluid moving forward. We won't be waiting to have physical meetings, which is good. And I, hopefully commissioners will be... Um, more trusting, not trusting is the wrong word, but more, we won't be wedded to a process that it means we have to travel. And I think it will be like important occasions, probably at the start of project still, but you know, the, hopefully the, the gateways within the project will be less of them where we have the, the kind of requirement to be somewhere physically. And I think obviously that's gonna be great for all sorts of things environmentally and, and spend resource and um, budget on, on the bits of project we really want to, that will be manifested and remembered. Absolutely. So you mentioned your team. Can we talk a little bit more about your team? Because your work really sits at such an intersection of different disciplines, you must have quite a different, a, a wide variety of skill sets uh, that, you, that you need and that you have on your team. We've got a kind of fabulous team that ranges from photographers, physicists, um, I'm trying to find a clever way of, um, we've got performers, yeah, they get all people begin with P, um, but, uh, yeah, 3D design, 2D design, uh, time-based performance, um, coders, um, engineers of different types, electronic engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, design engineers, architects, um, artists, so kind of quite a wide range or people inputting into projects. And I'd say people quite often with dual skills. So I'm always fascinated by the fact that people could have two different skills that might be not evident. And, you know, they kind of will, will kind of be, all be really useful. And that whole, everyone in the team is incredibly important at different points of the process of bringing, bringing work, um, making work happen. And you never know when a good idea is going to come from. So Jason, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about diversity and equity as it relates to your work. 
Can you speak to how you and your team think about incorporating diversity and equity? So, I mean, there's sort of many answers there. I mean, it's been something that um, I think our work has always embraced cultural diversity. And I'd say, yeah, the Black Lives Matter movement has definitely brought all of that thinking to the forefront of our minds, definitely. But the the thing that's always been important in terms of creating public work is very much how it is accessed, how it's understood, um, and how it's perceived. So that's something that's kind of really important. And the process we go through, we're reevaluating how that's disseminated, how we give opportunities to people to understand it. So quite a large number of my team are either involved in research or teaching, um, both engineering, coding, architecture, arts. Um, so we are, we are thinking about how does our work get understood and how does that benefit the, the research we're doing in the studio, how, how are we sharing that and how are we creating knowledge transfer and how is that accessible? So and a, and a whole series of levels. So we're working on some projects, we're working with um, primary school children secondary school children, so from age five to 16, 18. Um, and, and then obviously our sort of collaborations and our teaching with um, different university courses as well. So, and, and the other thing, I suppose, we're working across nearly 25 different countries where our work's been commissioned. So having to develop work that, that responds to different conditions and tries to explore localization um there's i mean it's very interesting looking at a site in chengdu or in tian or in shanghai versus tokyo versus seoul and just seeing the differences there in in a sort of certain part of the world um but um we have commissions currently running in ottawa boston obviously denver tampa um and I love the richness of the world. I love how places are different. And it is something we embrace and very careful to um, look at. I mean, I talked about the kind of genius loci, this sort of atmosphere of place, but sort of take that on board, but not appropriate anything. Um, the work is original and it is from my philosophy of thinking. It's from the studio's thinking and um, I think you know, we're always considering the, this matrix of inputs and um, we, we realize that how something looks and operates will differ in different parts of the world. Um, and one thing I suppose this has made me reflect upon a little bit is how will this work we're creating now, because we're very keen to develop work that is sustainable and will last essentially, is how will future generations look at what we're doing now? And we touch on quite a few subjects um, within the work I'm interested in. So we're looking at obviously data. We're looking at we're looking at resources. We're looking at um, we are looking at the sustainability of the projects as well. And I'm, I'm fascinated to to I'd love to fast forward 40 years and look back and have that hindsight. But you know, 
we're not going to have the luxury of that. But it's fascinating to how we're looking, we're looking back on what once were cultural artifacts, which was biased and skewed. And therefore, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how things progress and how much we can ho hopefully with the benefit of foresight rather than hindsight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you touched on a lot of different aspects of diversity there, right? Geographic and cultural and age. There are a lot of different ways that your audiences vary that you all have to take into account. So um, I want to shift gears again. We have a few minutes left and I want to be sure we have a, a little bit of a chance to talk about your your journey. So as you know, one of the things that the Spur Campus is hoping to do is to inspire young people to consider careers they might not have thought about and to connect those careers to these big challenges where it's appropriate. But really, we we are interested in telling the story of people who have all kinds of different careers so that students can see themselves and see their path and see that they have the opportunity to emulate someone who, who is potentially a role model for them. So, you know, I think about your path, maybe not being such a straight line, given your various different backgrounds that have led you here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got where you are? Absolutely. So um, it's slightly planned, slightly not planned journey. Um, my my family, you realize your kind of your DNA and your kind of programming to a degree. My mother was a trained artist and um, my father, um, a computer scientist and software engineer. So there's quite a bit of both parts of the way I'm practicing now that, you know, really do utilize that part of my upbringing. I mean, being surrounded by um, paintings, photography, um, the arts, um, and not just with my mother, but other artists in the family. And, but at the same time, you know, we would have very early PCs dotted around the house, which, you know, I was using from quite an early age to code or create my homework or do various things. And, um, and I certainly was really interested in this intersection between engineering uh, and the sciences and arts and wondering how I could find something fulfilling that would, I didn't really have a plan. I, I enjoyed a uh, lots of different things and, and certainly was really interested in the sciences. Um, I, uh, we, we do our kind of A-levels in the UK um, at sort of 17, 18, and I studied design and technology, pure maths, applied maths, physics, and German. So I, you know, that doesn't really, <laughs> there's no, there was no arts. I mean, the, the, the schooling system here will quite often split, will, will kind of not allow for, for the arts and the sciences to happen at the same time. Um, which would be one thing I'd go back and change if I could for lots of people. Um, and I figured that I, something like architecture would be interesting. It kind of uses both of those um, kind of core areas. So I trained as an architect, Oxford Brooks um, in Oxford, and um, very much I was learning about architecture for the first time. It's, but it's very varied. You learn about the history of art. You learn about buildings, you learn about construction, you learn about engineering. We even did um, environmental psychology, so how buildings make people feel. Um, we had some wonderful professor um, 
that was interested in extreme environments. So we learned how spaceships were built. Um, we had some really, and we had people that were building um, performance installations. So we had this kind of wide range of inputs. Um, and it's certainly, I was moving at that point, even early on towards the idea of performance and the idea of a building being a moving, living thing. I worked for Norman Foster, an architect in Hong Kong. I um, worked on the airport there as a sort of trainee architect, um, learning how to create production information for buildings. Um, came back and did my postgraduate at University College London, at the Bartlett School of Architecture. But I landed in this unit and it was under the guise of this gentleman called Peter Cook, who was part of Archigram. Um, a group of architects was quite radical. They thought buildings should walk, perform, change, inflate, um, all sorts of things. And we were taught really about ways of thinking and we weren't taught about designing buildings. It was like people became interested in film or robots or different sort of things. Um, and they've got a really big um, unit now which looks at um, bioarchitecture, um, architects that architecture that really links with plants and buildings uh, together. And I advise and teach them various things now. But that set me on a journey, and I did not know where that was going because I was building things that looked like they could be in Hollywood in terms of special effects, but I was building sort of dynamic robotic art installations within my postgraduate architectural training. And it was like, where does this fit in to the built environment? And I essentially was prototyping ideas and experiments for what I'm doing now. But it was all under the guise of um, Peter Cook, who was the professor looking after the thinking in the school. And it was very much turning things on their head. And he was very much interested in the idea of disruption. And, and that was key thinking, because I came out of architecture school thinking, how, what does this lead to? Um, I worked a little bit more as an architect, but I also um, worked for a company called Imagination, which designed experiences. And they were very much, and they were this amazing company that developed like expos and trade shows and World Cup launches and all sorts of things. And they had a group of people in a room that was the name on the door was R&D, research and development. And you'd go in there and they'd have lamps and projectors and they had a multimedia room with new computer systems. Um, and very much they were designing theatre. So I, my eyes were opened to this kind of new time-based way of creating architecture. So my idea of these sort of architectural installations meeting this theatre was, I suppose, the influences that then set me on my way. And I started to exhibit my own work before I had any commissions, which set me on a journey. And my first commission that I won whilst finishing my work there was a series of devices on roundabouts, um, the sort of junctions we have on our big roads. And this is a elevated roadway running east out of London. And I won a competition to create these public artworks that would measure the environment and create these, what I was calling these sort of litmus devices for testing the environment. And these were giant um, alphanumeric displays coming up 30, 40 feet out of these roundabouts that were measuring the environment. And I won this competition and suddenly I had to build. So that's what set me on my way. I had to set my studio up and think about how, how am I going to, um, yeah, how is this going to progress? So I had to hire, I had an assistant part-time. I had a couple of students helping me. I had a colleague from my last job came and helped me do production design 
and drawings. And at the same time, um, won a project for an artwork in a hotel in Spain where these digital walls would film people walking through the spaces and change color like a chameleon. Um, so that was another an early commission nearly 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Um, so it's projects like that that brought the studio into being sort of big environmental barometers on roundabouts and um, digital wallpapers, which were like a chameleon skin responding to the kind of fashion and the colors being worn by people. So you said it's been about 15, 16 years. Roughly how many installations have you done in that time? Well, that, they were built. So I started, I mean, my, I left my last job actually it'll be 20 years this summer. Um, the studio was officially incorporated 19 years ago. And I think we've built permanent and temporary pieces probably around 300. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, of all different scales. So probably the larger projects, about 150. Um, and by large projects, either building facades or things in lobbies or parts of airports or, you know, things. And probably a good proportion of those still exist today. Some have been decommissioned, some were temporary. Um, so it's been a fun journey so far. And I know no plans to stop. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. And I, I think from the CSU Spur perspective, you know, I keep circling back to this, that the multidisciplinary approach that we are taking with Spur, I think you're you're such a good example of what happens when you have multiple influences come together um, and certain kind of educational background that intersects with a different kind of passion or an inspiration from an individual who sort of can maybe push you along a certain path. So, um, we just have a few minutes left, so I, I want to be sure, you know, you've done a great job over the course of this conversation describing these installations that are fundamentally something that needs to be seen and experienced. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, but where can we point people so that they can see some more of your work so we can point people in the right direction? Um, I'm blessed with a fairly unique name. We, we the, um, So pretty much under any of the social media channels. If you look up Jason Bruges, you'll find some representation at the website is jasonbruges.com um, where we have a portfolio of work. It's fairly simple. It's um, representation of um, some, a selection of some of the work. Um, and um, interestingly, actually it bifurcates into a kind of art portfolio but there are, there are some projects which have been commissioned as design projects. So they've got certain, we've got a brief essentially that whether the criteria they're judged against. So they're loosely, the slightly more leaning towards design commissions. Um, the work is highly visual. So doing a podcast is wonderful, but I've had do a lot of talking about what things look like. So yes, um, Instagram is a great place um, at Jason Bruges for, um, the, the kind of, again, an ongoing um, cataloging and description of this year's work. We're doing quite a lot of work looking at our archives. Um, we're doing work where we look at the prototyping we do and within the studio. Occasionally, we'll mention what we're up to on Twitter. Um, we have Facebook. And actually, because a lot of the work is moving and animated, the... Um, Jason Bruges Vimeo channel is actually quite a good place to work, look at. Um, 
longer versions we have like um what people love seeing is the making of the documenting of and obviously we will have that for this piece per rotation index there's something for everyone um and which 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 i think is is nice and means that it will inspire many different types of people, hopefully. Wonderful. Thank you. We will link to all of your various social media channels and particularly that Vimeo channel is a great recommendation. I highly encourage all of our listeners to go and take a look um, because you really don't, it's, it's hard for us to describe how impactful um, and just fun so many of these installations are and watching people in their day-to-day life have that discovery moment or interact with it um, maybe as they do every day is is really an important component of, of what makes your work so special and, and impactful. So um, we are going to wrap up. So I have a spur of the moment question for you, oh, which you have <laughs> yeah. not heard before. Um, but because we focus a little on food at the Spur campus, um, I'll just ask you, if you had one food that you had to eat every day for the rest of your life, what would that food be? Well, I have to say, um, I the, 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 the I, I'll do this based on experience. I travelled to Mumbai in India um, a few years ago with a group of students, and I also had a commissioner there as well. And we were, I mean, we were there to to see the city, see the culture. We were to look at how things were recycled. We went to the um, the kind of slum areas. We went to the adjacent rural areas. Absolutely fascinating, and. Um, I do really love um, Indian curries. I love all the different varieties of them, Southern Indian, North Indian. Um, anyway, I was kind of wondering, am I going to get bored of an Indian curry? And I had them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two weeks. And I have to say, I didn't. So that's probably a safe option is to go down that route. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely talking with you. and. We are so thrilled that you and your team are working on an installation uh, at the Spur campus. We can't wait for the day that that is installed and we are able to experience it in person. Uh, wish you all the best in the meantime. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Justin. That's wonderful. And thank you for your time and, uh, and the invite to talk. One last thank you to Jason for joining us on the Spur of the Moment podcast today. You can visit his website and see images and video of the amazing installations that he and his team have installed around the world at jasonbruges.com. His last name is spelled B-R-U-G-E-S. And do also look for him on various social media channels and on Vimeo to see video of how these installations, which many of which are fundamentally interactive and move with um, the people and the environment around them, really worth checking them out on Vimeo. Thanks again to Jason, and we'll see you next time on Spur of the Moment. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Until then, be well. Thank you.